Section 69 of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. Section 69 James G. Blaine. Part 1. Few men are more prominently placed before the vision of a mighty nation today than James G. Blaine. Born in obscurity, he possesses traits of character which are peculiar to himself. They differ widely from that of any statesman who ever spoke in the legislative halls at Washington. Colleges of themselves make no man great. An educated idiot will never make a statesman notwithstanding the too prevalent notion that the possession of a diploma should entitle any one to a place in our social aristocracy the great active relentless human world gives a man a place of real influence and crowns him as truly great for what he really is and will not care a fig for any college certificate if the young man is determined to succeed in the world then a college is a help the trouble is not in the college but in the man he should regard the college as a means to attain a result not the result of itself the question the great busy world asks the claimant is what can he do if the claimant enters school determined to succeed even if he sleeps but four to six hours out of the twenty-four he will be benefited however study like that of webster by new hampshire pine knots and like Garfield's by a woodpile generally proves valuable Blaine's life is thus beautifully described by his biographer James Gillespie Blaine the subject of this biography was born January 31st 1830 his father Ephraim L Blaine and his mother Maria Gillespie still lived in their two-story house on the banks of the Monongahela no portentous events either in nature or public affairs marked his advent a few neighbors with generous interest and sympathy extended their aid and congratulations the tops of the hills and the distant alleghanies were white with snow but the valley was bare and brown and the swollen river swept the busy ferryboat from shore to shore with marked emphasis as old acquaintances repeated the news of the day blaine has another son another soul clothed in humanity another cry increased care in one little home that was all it seemed so sad in this the day of his fame and power that the mother who with such pain and misgivings prayer and noble resolutions saw his face for the first time should now be sleeping in the churchyard in the path that now leads by her grave she had often paused before entering the shadowy gates of the weather-beaten catholic church and calmed her anxious fears that she might devoutly worship God and secure the answer to her prayer for her child It seems strange now in the light of other experiences that no tradition or record of a mother's prophecy Concerning the future greatness of her son comes down to us from that birthday or from his earliest years but the old European customs and prejudices of her Irish and Scottish ancestry seem to have lingered with sufficient force to still give the place of social honor and to found the parents hopes on the firstborn 
To all concerned, it was a birth of no special significance. Outside of the family, it was a matter of no moment. Births were frequent. The Brownsville people heard of it and passed on to forget, as a ripple in the Monongahela flashes on the careless sight for a moment, and then the river rolls on as before. Ephraim Blaine was proud of another son. The little brother and the smaller sister hailed a new brother. The mother, with a deep joy which escaped not in words, looked onward and tried to read the future, when the flood of years should have carried her new treasure from her arms. That flood has swept over her now, and all her highest hopes and ambition is filled. But she seems not to hear the church bells that ring, nor the cannon that bellow at the sound of his name. All his early childhood years were spent about his home, playing in the well-kept yard, gazing at the numerous boats that so frequently went puffing by. For a short time the family moved to the old Gillespie house further up the river, and some of the inhabitants say that at one time, while some repairs were going on, they resided at the old homestead of Neil Gillespie, back from the river on Indian Hill. At seventeen he graduated from school, and his father losing what little property he did have, young Blaine was thrown upon his own resources. But it is often the best thing possible for a young man to be thus tossed overboard and be compelled to sink or swim. It develops a self-reliant nature. He secured employment as a teacher, and into this calling he threw his whole soul. Thus he became a success as an educator at Blue Lick Springs. He next went to Philadelphia, and for two years was the principal teacher of the boys in the Philadelphia Institution for Instruction of the Blind. When he left that institution, he left behind him a universal regret at a serious loss incurred, but an impression of his personal force upon the work of that institution, which it is stated on good authority, is felt to this day. Mr. Chapin, the principal, one day said, as he took from a desk in the corner of the schoolroom, a thick quarto manuscript book, bound in dark leather and marked journal. Now I will show you something that illustrates how thoroughly Mr. Blaine mastered anything he took hold of. This book Mr. Blaine compiled with great labor from the minute books of the Board of Managers. It is a historical view of the institution from the time of its foundation up to the time of Mr. Blaine's departure. He did all the work in his own room, telling no one of it till he left. Then he presented it through me to the Board of Managers, who were both surprised and gratified. I believe they made him a present of one hundred dollars as a thank-offering for an invaluable work. The book illustrates one great feature in the success of Mr. Blaine. It is clear and indicates his mastery of facts in whatever he undertook, and his orderly presentation of facts in detail. The fact that no one knew of it until the proper time, when its effect would be greatest, shows that he naturally possesses a quality that is almost indispensable to the highest attainment of success. He left Philadelphia for Augusta, Maine, where he became editor of the Kennebec Journal. While editor and member of his state legislature, he laid the foundation which prepared him to step at once to the front, when, in 1862, he was sent to the National Congress, when the country was greatly agitated over the 520 bonds, and how they should be redeemed. Mr. Blaine spoke as follows. 
But now, Mr. Speaker, suppose for the sake of argument, we admit that the government may fairly and legally pay the 520 bonds in paper currency. What then? I ask the gentleman from Massachusetts to tell us what then? It is easy, I know, to issue as many greenbacks as will pay the maturing bonds, regardless of the effect upon the inflation of prices and the general derangement of business. Five hundred millions of 520s are now payable and according to the easy mode suggested all we have to do is to set the printing presses in motion and so long as rags and lamp black hold out we need have no embarrassment about paying our national debt but the ugly question recurs what are you going to do with the greenbacks thus put afloat five hundred millions this year and eleven hundred millions more on this theory of payment by the year eighteen seventy two so that within the period of four and five years we would have added to our paper money the thrilling inflation of sixteen hundred millions of dollars we should all have splendid times doubtless wheat under the new dispensation ought to bring twenty dollars a bushel and boots would not be worth more than two hundred dollars a pair and the farmers of our country would be as well off as santa anna's rabble of mexican soldiers who were allowed ten dollars a day for their services and charged eleven for their rations and clothing the sixteen hundred millions of greenbacks added to the amount already issued would give us some twenty three hundred millions of paper money and i suppose the theory of the new doctrine would leave this mass permanently in circulation for it would hardly be consistent to advocate the redemption of the greenbacks in gold after having repudiated and forsworn our obligation on the bonds but if it be intended to redeem the legal tenders in gold what will have been the net gain to the government in the whole transaction if any gentleman will tell me i shall be glad to learn how it will be easier to pay sixteen hundred millions in gold in the redemption of greenbacks than to pay the same amount in the redemption of 520 bonds the policy advocated it seems to me has only two alternatives the one to ruinously inflate the currency and leave it so reckless of results the other to ruinously inflate the currency at the outset only to render redemption in gold far more burdensome in the end I know it may be claimed that the means necessary to redeem the 520s in greenbacks may be realized by a new issue of currency bonds to be placed on the market. Of results in the future every gentleman has the right to his own opinion, and all may alike indulge in speculation, but it does seem to me that the government should be placed in awkward attitude when it should enter the market to negotiate the loan, the avails of which were to be devoted to breaking faith with those who already held its most sacred obligations what possible security would the new class of creditors have that when their debts were matured some new form of evasion would be resorted to by which they in turn would be deprived of their just and honest dues falsus in uno falsus in omnibus would supply the ready form of protest against trusting a government with a new loan when it had just ignored its plain obligation on an old one payment of the 520 bonds in paper currency involves therefore a limitless issue of greenbacks with attendant evils of gigantic magnitude and far-reaching consequence 
and the worst evil of the whole is the delusion which calls this a payment at all it is no payment in any proper sense for it neither gives the creditor what he is entitled to nor does it release the debtor from subsequent responsibility you may get rid of the 520 by issuing the greenback but how will you get rid of the greenback except by paying gold the only escape from ultimate payment of gold is to declare that as a nation we permanently and finally renounce all idea of ever attaining a specie standard that we launch ourselves on an ocean of paper money without shore or sounding with no rudder to guide us and no compass to steer by and this is precisely what is involved if we adopt this mischievous suggestion of a new way to pay old debts our fate in attempting such a course may be easily read in the history of similar follies both in europe and in our own country prostration of credit financial disaster widespread distress among all classes of the community would form the closing scenes in our career of gratuitous folly and national dishonor and from such an abyss of sorrow and humiliation it would be a painful and toilsome effort to regain as sound a position in our finances as we are asked voluntarily to abandon today the remedy for our financial troubles mr speaker will not be found in a superabundance of depreciated paper currency it lies in the opposite direction and the sooner the nation finds itself on a specie basis the sooner will the public treasury be freed from embarrassment and private business relieved from discouragement instead therefore of entering upon a reckless and boundless issue of legal tenders with their consequent depression if not destruction of value let us set resolutely to work and make those already in circulation equal to so many gold dollars when that result shall be accomplished we can proceed to pay our five twenties either in coin or paper for the one would be equivalent to the other but to proceed deliberately on a scheme of depreciating our legal tenders and then forcing the holders of government bonds to accept them in payment would resemble in point of honor the policy of a merchant who with abundant resources and prosperous business should devise a plan for throwing discredit on his own notes with the view of having them bought up at a discount ruinous to the holders and immensely profitable to his own knavish pocket this comparison may faintly illustrate the wrongfulness of the policy but not its consummate folly for in the case of the government unlike the merchant the stern necessity would recur of making good in the end by the payment of hard coin all the discount that might be gained by the temporary substitution of paper discarding all such schemes as at once unworthy and unprofitable let us direct our policy steadily but not rashly toward the resumption of specie payment and when we have attained that end easily attainable at no distant day if the proper policy be pursued we can all unite on some honorable plan for the redemption of the five twenty bonds and the issuing instead thereof a new series of bonds which can be more favorably placed at a low rate of interest when we shall have reached the specie basis the value of united states securities will be so high in the money market of the world 
that we can command our own terms. We can then call in our five twenties according to the very letter and spirit of the bond and adjust a new loan that will be eagerly sought for by capitalists and will be free from those elements of discontent that in some measure surround the existing funded debt of the country as to the particular measures of legislation requisite to hasten the resumption of specie payment gentlemen equally entitled to respect may widely differ but there is one line of policy conducive thereto on which we all ought to agree and that is on a serious reduction of the government expenses and a consequent lightening of the burdens of taxation the interest-bearing debt of the united states when permanently funded will not exceed twenty one hundred millions of dollars imposing an annual interest of about one hundred and twenty five millions our other expenses including war navy the pension list and the civil list ought not to exceed one hundred millions so that if we raise two hundred and fifty millions from customs and internal revenue combined we should have twenty-five millions annual surplus to apply to the reduction of the public debt but to attain this end we must mend our ways and practice an economy far more consistent and severe than any we have attempted in the past our military peace establishment must be reduced one half at least and our naval appropriations correspondingly curtailed and innumerable leaks and gaps and loose ends that have so long attended our government expenditure must be taken up and stopped if such a policy be pursued by congress neither the principal of the debt nor the interest of the debt nor the annual expenses of government will be burdensome to the people we can raise two hundred and fifty millions of revenue on the gold basis and at the same time have a vast reduction in our taxes and we can do this without repudiation in any form either open or covert avowed or indirect but with every obligation of the government fulfilled and discharged in its exact letter and in its generous spirit and this mr speaker we shall do our national honor demands it our national interest equally demands it we have vindicated our claim to the highest heroism on a hundred bloody battlefields and have stopped at no sacrifice of life needful to the maintenance of our national integrity i am sure that in the peace which our arms have conquered we shall not dishonor ourselves by withholding from any public creditor a dollar that we promise to pay him nor seek by cunning construction and clever afterthought to evade or escape the full responsibility of our national indebtedness it will doubtless cost us a vast sum to pay that indebtedness but it would cost us incalculably more not to pay it this speech here referred to occurring as it did when the ablest speakers were interested was pronounced as a marvel the great rows of figures which he gave but which space will not allow us to give illustrates the man and his thorough mastery of all great public questions he never enters a debate unless fully prepared if not already prepared he prepares himself his reserve power is wonderful what a feature of success is reserve power in eighteen seventy six occurred one of the most remarkable contests ever known in congress the debate began upon the proposition 
to grant a general amnesty to all those who had engaged in the southern war on the side of the confederacy of course this would include mr davis the honorable benjamin h hill of georgia one of the ablest congressmen in the south met mr blaine on the question as space will not permit us to go into detail at all as we would like to we give simply an extract from one of mr blaine's replies i am very frank to say that in regard to all these gentlemen save one i do not know of any reason why amnesty should not be granted to them as it has been to many others of the same class i am not here to argue against it the gentleman from iowa mr cason suggests on their application i am coming to that but as i have said seeing in this list as i have examined it with some care no gentleman to whom i think there would be any objection since amnesty has already become so general and i am not going back of that question to argue it i am in favor of granting it to them but in the absence of this respectful form of application which since may twenty second eighteen seventy two has become a sort of common law as preliminary to amnesty i simply wish to put it in that they shall go before a united states court and in open court with uplifted hand swear that they mean to conduct themselves as good citizens of the united states and that is all now gentlemen may say that this is a foolish exaction possibly it is but somehow or other i have a prejudice in favor of it and there are some petty points in it that appeal as well to prejudice as to conviction for one i do not want to impose citizenship on any gentleman if i am correctly informed and i stated only on rumor there are some gentlemen in this list who have spoken contemptuously of the idea of their taking citizenship and have spoken still more contemptuously of the idea of their applying for citizenship i may state it wrongly and if i do i am willing to be corrected but i understand that mr robert toombs has on several occasions at watering places both in this country and in europe stated that he would not ask the united states for citizenship very well we can stand it about as well as mr robert toombs can and if mr robert toombs is not prepared to go into a court of the united states and swear that he means to be a good citizen let him stay out i do not think that the two houses of congress should convert themselves into a joint convention for the purpose of embracing mr robert toombs and gushingly request him to favor us by coming back to accept all the honors of citizenship that is the whole and all i ask is that each of these gentlemen shall show his good faith by coming forward and taking the oath which you on that side of the house and we on this side of the house and all of us take and gladly take it is a very small exaction to make as a preliminary to full restoration to all the rights of citizenship in my amendment mr speaker i have accepted jefferson davis from its operation now i do not place it on the ground that mr davis was as he has been commonly called the head and front of the rebellion because on that ground i do not think the exception would be tenable mr davis was just as guilty no more so no less so than thousands of others who have already received the benefit and grace of amnesty probably he was far less efficient 
as an enemy of the United States. Probably he was far more useful as a disturber of the councils of the Confederacy than many who have already received amnesty. It is not because of any particular and special damage that he above others did to the Union, or because he was personally or especially of consequence, that I accept him. But I accept him on this ground, that he was the author, knowingly, deliberately, guiltily, and willfully, of the gigantic murders and crimes at Andersonville. Mr. Speaker, this is not a proposition to punish Jefferson Davis. There is nobody attempting that. I will very frankly say that I myself thought the indictment of Mr. Davis at Richmond, under the administration of Mr. Johnson, was a weak attempt, for he was indicted only for that of which he was guilty in common with all the others who went into the Confederate movement. Therefore there was no particular reason for it. But I will undertake to say this and as it may be considered an extreme speech, I want to say it with great deliberation, that there is not a government, a civilized government, on the face of the globe, I am very sure there is not a European government that would not have arrested Mr. Davis, and when they had him in their power, would not have tried him for maltreatment of the prisoners of war, and shot him within thirty days. France, Russia, England, Germany, Austria, any one of them would have done it. The poor victim Wirtz deserved his death for brutal treatment and murder of many victims. But I always thought it was a weak movement on the part of our government to allow Jefferson Davis to go at large and hang Wirtz. I confess I do. Wirtz was nothing in the world but a mere subordinate, a tool, and there was no special reason for singling him out for death. I do not say he did not deserve it. He did, richly, amply, fully. He deserved no mercy, but at the same time, as I have often said, it seemed like skipping over the president, superintendent, and board of directors in the case of a great railroad accident, and hanging the brakeman of the rear car. There is no proposition here to punish Jefferson Davis. Nobody is seeking to do it. That time has gone by. The statute of limitation, common feelings of humanity, will supervene for his benefit. But what you ask us to do is to declare by a vote of two-thirds of both branches of Congress that we consider Mr. Davis worthy to fill the highest offices in the United States if he can get a constituency to endorse him. He is a voter. He can buy and he can sell, he can go and he can come, he is as free as any man in the United States. There is a large list of subordinate offices to which he is eligible. This bill proposes, in view of that record, that Mr. Davis, by a two-thirds vote of the Senate and a two-thirds vote of the House, be declared eligible and worthy to fill any office up to the Presidency of the United States. For one, upon full deliberation, I will not do it. End of section 69, James G. Blaine, part 1.